When my uh, family and I moved to uh, the house we're in now, the insurance company sent around an agent who looked around the house and determined that there were a few things that needed to be done uh, before the full underwriting, I don't understand what all this means, but would come, you know, would be in place. Um, and they gave us a year to get some of those things done. They told us what those things were. It was like dead limbs hanging over the house. Turned out there was a whole dead tree. We had to take down a whole dead tree. There was a few shingles that were missing here and there, and the roof needed to be replaced. And then there was ivy growing on three sides of the house that they wanted to be removed. And that one really busted me up a little bit because I loved that ivy. I thought it looked so awesome. And amen. And we even went so far as to inquire to the company and say, why? Why does the ivy need to be taken down? And here's what they said. It destroys the mortar between the bricks in your house. If it gets up in the roof, it messes up the shingles. And it's a haven for insects. And I was like, ah, whatever, you know. <laughs> looks awesome. It makes my house look like it should have a name like Downton Abbey or something like that, you know? So over the course of the last year, we did all the other things they asked. We cut down the tree, we did the shingles, and I just left that ivy to the last minute. You know, I was waiting for the last moment. Hated to see it go. And when I finally got up on that ladder and started scraping that ivy off the walls of my house, you know what I found? I found it was messing up the mortar between my bricks. <laughs> it was getting up under the roof and messing up my shingles. And it was a haven for insects. There were anthills up in that ivy, y'all. There were wasp nests in that ivy everywhere. Um, and you know what else? It was a real booger to get down, too. It was uh, really in there. So I've always, uh, you know, liked the look of the spreading vines like that one that was crawling all over my house. I still like the look of it. But this summer when I was taking all that vine down, I learned something, that all vines are not the same. All vines are not created equal. <laughs> Some vines are productive, and other vines are destructive. Some vines produce flowers or even fruit or vegetables. They're a blessing to those that cultivate them. Other vines just jack your stuff up and choke out other plants and get in the mortar and get under the shingles. But here's the thing. Productive vines and destructive vines, they all look great. They all look beautiful to my eye, right? So I learned something. This week I thought of that as I was studying for this, uh, this sermon. Um, in the Hebrew, there's a word that's used to describe spreading vines of the destructive sort. And they are called bakau or empty vines. And these are vines that do not produce fruit. Now, these empty vines spread like crazy. They thrive. They are sturdy. They may even be beautiful. They may even be so beautiful that they make your house look like it should have a name and speak with a British accent. But they are empty vines. The word bakau means empty. Despite their beauty, they offer no real fruit to the world. In fact, when you get up close, you find out what they really offer is like wasps and ants and stuff like that. Now with that said, here's my question for you today. 
Because we're all branches that are drawing life from somewhere, right? What kind of vine are you drawing your life from today? All of us are like branches connected to a vine that is feeding us, informing us, showing us how to live in this world. But is the lifestyle that they're feeding us, is it productive or is it destructive? You can't tell just by looking at the outside sometimes, Destru- or from a distance. Destructive vines can be very beautiful. The life that those vines promise can look very beautiful, but when you get up close, you find out that they are empty. They are destructive. And in a world of empty, creeping ivy that looks beautiful on the outside, but underneath, underneath is just tearing up the mortar in your house. Jesus comes to us as the true vine this morning. So as we continue with our series on the names of Jesus, the titles of Jesus in the scripture, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 15 to uh, a title, a name that is not attributed to Jesus, but a name that Jesus calls himself, the true vine. John chapter 15, I'll be reading verses 1 through 16. From the NIV, if you are able, would you stand with me at the reading of the Holy Scripture? I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. So remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from your father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Some names of Jesus, as I mentioned just a moment ago, we find in Scripture are names that are given to Jesus. This is one that he gives to himself, the true vine. This passage that we've just read is from a longer teaching of Jesus that theologians call the farewell 
narrative or the farewell discourse. It is the name, as the name implies, this is the last time that Jesus will speak to his disciples before he is crucified. Now, spoiler alert, it's not the last time he's going to speak to his disciples. It's Friday now. Sunday is coming. But this is a special moment, for sure. This is an intimate moment. This is a teaching moment, a kind of... um, It's very direct, but it's very tender. And his words, if you read them, seem urgent in a a unique way. You can tell that he's really trying to punctuate what is most important among his closest disciples. They don't know what Jesus is about to face, but he does. They don't know what they are about to face, but Jesus does. Jesus knows his disciples are going to face You know, much of what he is, they will be falsely accused as he is falsely accused. They will be uh, ridiculed as he is ridiculed. They will barely escape. Some of them will not escape the execution that is uh, unjust that he is about to experience. He knows what's going to happen to them. He knows they're going to suffer rejection from the community because of their association with them. He knows they're going to face many doubts in their own hearts about him and his mission and whether... He is who he says he is. So Jesus knows this is an important moment. The farewell discourse is a special moment. Now imagine him talking to disciples and doing this in a very personal way, a very intimate way, getting close to them, making a lot of eye contact. I want you to just kind of imagine that for a moment. Gathered around Jesus and him getting close, making eye contact making sure they hear him, but not only hear him, they feel the weight, the impact of what he's saying. He's trying to see in their eyes that they understand what he's saying. And I can imagine Jesus speaking. And as we go through here, you should try and imagine Jesus speaking to you, saying, listen to me now, because there's not much time Listen to me. They're coming for me tonight. And there's still so much to tell you, so much that you don't understand. So look at me. Listen to me. Do you hear what I'm telling you? What I'm going to tell you now is the most important things that I can think of to tell you. You must understand that I am the vine. And you are the branches. You need to understand this. You have to understand this. Before they come and get me, hear me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Jesus has a word for us today, y'all. And I'm asking you just to draw close as he's asking those disciples to draw close because you are disciples as they. And hear. Listen. Listen to three things that the vine is declaring to the branches in the passage we just read. These are not not suggestions. They are declarations. Now, they're not declarations. He's not yelling and screaming, that kind of declaration. It's, It's a hear ye, hear ye moment in the sense of this is what the king has to say. Pay attention to me. Listen to me. Look me in my eyes. Hear what I'm saying to you. Focus. 
These are not suggestions. This is Jesus trying to get down deep into the heart of his disciples. And if you are a disciple of Christ today, he's, get, he's trying to get something deep down in your soul as well. And so he reaches for this very meaningful metaphor for the disciples in hopes that they will understand the nature of the relationship that they have with him as his disciples. And my prayer is that you too will feel the impact of this important metaphor of the vine and the branches so that you will understand the nature of the relationship if you're a follower of Jesus, the very nature of the relationship that you have with him, how it operates, how it works. Understanding this metaphor, this title that Jesus gives himself is a matter of spiritual life and death for you today. That's how he's communicating to his disciples, and that's how he's communicating to us today. I want you to hear Jesus saying to you today, if you're a Christian, I, I, if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to know me, if you want to have a relationship with me, please understand how this works. You are the branch, and I am the vine. And here's what I mean by that. There are three things you must know. First of all, Jesus says, I'm not a vine. I am the vine. I am the true vine. This is how the discourse starts right here, isn't it, in chapter 15? Not just, it's kind of like this, y'all. Our relationship is kind of like a vine and a branch. I'm just trying to think of something that you'll relate to. You get a sense of weight from the start. This vine and branches thing is a metaphor, is more than a metaphor just to help us understand. Jesus gives himself a title, a name here, the true vine. I am the true vine. So what does he mean? Well, to us, this may seem like a metaphor that he pulled out of the air, but to his disciples who are all good Jewish boys, they um, know exactly what Jesus is referring to because growing up, they've all heard many times Israel referred to as the vine. There are numerous passages in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, and Hosea, where Israel is referred to as the vine. And as the scriptures were read in synagogue every Sabbath, they would have heard those references over and over and over again. So this is not lost on them that Jesus says, I am the true vine. This is not just a metaphor for them. It's a specific metaphor that has been used before in the Old Testament. Um, but here's the thing. In almost all of those passages, the references to the vine, Israel the vine, are negative. Let me show you an example. If you want to keep your finger here and turn to Hosea chapter 10, you can see one of these. Chapter, Hosea chapter 10, 1 and 2. This is just one of many. Look at this. Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. Israel brought forth, it was a spreading vine who brought forth fruit for himself. And as Israel's fruit increased, he built more altars. Now we'll see this in just a minute, but these are not altars to the Most High God. These are altars to Baal and the other gods of those surrounding them. 
Continuing on, as his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Another reference to pagan worship. Israel's heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. This is the kind of reference to the vine that the disciples are used to hearing. They know this metaphor of the vine. They know it as it is applied to Israel, and they know it as a metaphor of failure. So look at that first sentence again. Israel was a spreading vine. This word translated spreading in the NIV is that word baka in Hebrew that I mentioned earlier. Its primary meaning is empty. Now, an empty vine can spread. An empty vine can prosper. Do you see that in that passage? An empty vine can even look beautiful from the outside, but it only prospers itself. Did you see that there? He brought forth fruit for himself. Israel was a spreading vine that brought forth fruit only for itself. The beauty is deceitful. So when I read this passage in Hosea, what I thought of, uh, you know, beyond the, the ivy on my own house was kudzu. Uh, if you're not familiar kudzu, there's some right there. It even says kudzu on the picture. Kudzu is a vine that was uh, imported to the U.S. from Japan to help with soil erosion in the coastal south. Sadly, they did not uh, also bring over the caterpillar that eats the kudzu in Japan and keeps it under control. They tried to after the fact, but that caterpillar just can't live here. So this is what happens when you start messing with ecosystems, right? You get these kind of invasive species like this. Uh, kudzu has no natural enemies, apparently, and spread all over the south. Um, and I remember traveling as a kid. Uh, my family's from Lexington. I have family in Lexington, and we grew up in Denver. And we would travel through, um, you know, to get to their house. And I always liked when we got close enough to home. This kind of scene right here was very much like a trigger for me, like, oh, we're close now, you know. And I loved watching it be miles and miles of this on the side of the highway that goes to, to Lexington. And I always thought it looked like dinosaurs, you know, under a blanket, you know doing whatever, I don't know what dinosaurs, I don't know what they do under a blanket, but I, anyway, that's what, I, that's what I thought of, okay? What I didn't know is that all those dinosaurs were dead trees. <laughs> that's what kudzu does. It brings forth fruit, but only for itself. It, it creates these beautiful carpets of green that choke out every other plant that's underneath there. So this is the spreading vine, an image of the, of the spreading vine in Hosea 10. It's an empty vine. God is saying to the people through the prophet Hosea, he's saying, as you have profit, uh, prospered Israel, you have not given glory to the God that gave you the prospering. In fact, as I prospered you, you made the mistake of thinking you had prospered yourself in your own wisdom. You got greedy. You went to the nations around you. And as you sought to prosper yourselves further with them, it went with them just like I warned you it would. You began trading with them on the Sabbath. You put up altars to their gods in Israel so that you could build alliances with them. You gave your sons and your daughters a marriage to them to build partnerships with them. And they began to worship those gods you began praying to their sacred stones for more and more and more and more and more. And you are a spreading, prosperous vine now, Israel, but your vine is empty. 
It is fruitless. It's good for nothing but kindling a fire. This is the vine that the disciples are familiar with. The image of a failed vine. An empty vine. A vine that spreads but is destructive. It takes life in order to live itself. So when Jesus looked at these disciples in the eye and he says, I am the true vine. He's declaring something not only to them but to the ages. He's saying, I have come to succeed where Israel failed. I have come to be the son that Israel could not be. I am the new and better Israel, fulfilling everything that Israel was to become. I am the new and better David, fulfilling everything that David was to become. I am the new and better Abraham. I am the new and better Moses. I am the new and better Adam, because in Adam all fell, but in the new Adam all may have life. All of these are signs and types. They're all arrows pointing to me, says Jesus, as he says, I am the true vine. Are y'all hearing me today? He is declaring something. Those arrows and types had no power to save in and of themselves. They all point to the one who can. I am the true vine, not an empty vine that spreads and gives no life. I am a fruitful vine, and you are branches attached to my vine, the true vine. You will have life, and that life will bear fruit, and that fruit will last. Now turn back to John 15, if you would. I want you to note, as we're reading here, some of you probably thought we, I, I, I forgot and went a little long in that reading because about halfway through it, start, it stops talking about the vine, right? But in and around verse 9, as the metaphor kind of goes away, what you find is that 9 through 16 serves as a kind of commentary on 1 through 8. It explains what the metaphor means, everything that it does. What Jesus is saying, he, he, then, he then explains in that second half. So I want you to look at verse 16 for some commentary on what Jesus means when he says that I'm the true vine. You are my branches. He means this. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you so that what? You might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. You see how these are connected to that first section. So when Jesus says, I'm the true vine, he's saying to these disciples, you have not attached yourselves to one of the other of the world's empty, fruitless vines that prosper. They're only concerned with prospering only themselves. All the philosophies, all the worldly wisdom, all the gurus, all the leaders out there in the world, they have their um, uh, life uh, styles that they're trying to get you to, to take up. They're like kudzu. They look amazing on the outside from a distance, but underneath all that green is death. You're not attached to one of those empty vines. You are attached to a fruitful vine. Uh, What is pictured here, if we go to the next next, uh, slide, is is, is the vineyard. This is the metaphor as, as it runs through this chapter. 
you are attached to a vine that will bear fruit. Not just for your lifetime, but for generations to come. The fruit that I bring about in you will produce more fruit in others. The life that I produce in you is not just for your benefit. It is producing life beyond you, even, even from this moment up to this one right now, y'all. But in order to have life, in order to have the kind of life that gives life, that can give life, you need to be attached to life. Which brings us to the second declaration that the vine has for the branches, and that's this hard truth. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What the vine has to say to the branches, if you boil it down, three things. First of all, I am the true vine. Understand what that means. But secondly, apart from me, you can do nothing. You're the branch. A branch cannot thrive out there by itself. It's not self-sufficient. You are a branch, and I am the vine. If you are separated from me, you can do nothing. All right? Look at verse 4. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Are you? He's looking in your eyes. He's saying, can you hear me? Do you understand me? If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burn. Can we go back to that vineyard image one more time? Would that be okay? The image that Jesus is, is, is cultivating here is not just a fruit-bearing um, uh, vine that's just running wild out in the woods, okay? I don't know about y'all. I mean, I know you're supposed to know. I was taught, you know, growing up, you just don't eat berries you find out there, right? You just don't eat berries because some of those berries ain't good, and they look just like the other berries that are fine, right? So it was easier to just say, just don't eat any of them, all right? That's not the image here. The image that Jesus is painting here is not just a fruit-bearing vine that's running wild. He is bringing to mind this image of a cultivated vine, that of a vineyard, because a vineyard has a gardener tending to it, right? This image is, is, is present right from the beginning. John 15, 1 and 2 says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And we'll get to that pruning part in just a moment. But here we see there's a very clear criteria that will, that will indicate to the gardener which branches are connected to the true vine. What is that criteria? Say it. It's fruit. Bears fruit. They bear fruit. Something that is alive produces more alive, right? More life. Only that which is connected to the source of life can produce life. And the lesson that we learn from kudzu is that some branches can look really alive, but they're not producing life, and therefore they're not alive in the sense that Jesus has envisioned, right? That life will pass. See, when an invasive species or a, a, a parasite runs out of host, what happens? It dies, right? But the life that Jesus is talking about, the fruit, is fruit that will remain, fruit that will produce more fruit, 
fruit that keeps on life, that keeps on living beyond itself. So to put this in our, you know, in context, a rich person can look very alive. They can have all the trappings of life. They can even have a life that we would really like to live. But if they are not connected to the true vine, then theirs is an empty branch. Because all of that, for the life it seems to have now, will fade and die. A wise person can look very alive. But if they are not connected to the true vine, then they are an empty branch. A kind person can look very alive. But if they're not connected to the true vine, then theirs is an empty branch. A giving person, a philanthropist, can look very alive. But if they're not connected to the true vine, then theirs is an empty branch. Listen now. A person can even call themselves a Christian. They can do Christian things. They can listen to all the Christian music. They can say all the Christian stuff. But if they're not connected to the true vine. And there's this an empty branch. And this is the warning of this passage. There are even those who look like they are connected to the vine that are not. And they will be cut away and they will be thrown into the fire. There is a reference in this passage to an example of just this kind of false branch, this false vine. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3, if you would, real quickly. Notice how it switches metaphors real quick. In verse 2, he's talking about the, the vine and cutting off the branch, and he's talking about pruning and all those kinds of things. But look at verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. All of a sudden, there's a switch to cleanliness, and, and, and he switches off of the vine metaphor and then goes back to it later in the next verse. Why? Well, it's because he's referencing something as an example that just happened during the Last Supper that he had with these disciples. Turn, it's probably just one page or so, maybe even less, back in your copy of the Scriptures to John 13, 10. This is at the moment when, when Jesus is going to wash their feet, Peter, being Peter, doing Peter things, says, no, nah, you're not going to wash my feet. I'm going to wash your feet. He says, if I don't wash your feet. You have no part with me. Then he says, well, then wash me from head to toe. So I'm just that kind of guy. I do it 100%, right? Jesus says back to him in verse 10, those, the, those who have had a bath, those who have been washed, need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean. Look at this, though not every one of you is clean. Not every one of you. Now, y'all that know the story, just go ahead and spoil it for the rest of us. What, who is the one who's not clean? Judas. Judas. We need to remember, y'all, Judas was not... Judas was a follower of Jesus. Judas was chosen by Jesus. Jesus was invited just like all the rest of them were invited to follow Jesus. We assume that Judas was sent out two by two into the surrounding towns to cast out demons with all the other, all the other disciples. He was given responsibilities just like the other disciples. He kept the, the purse, kept the money. From anybody looking in from the outside, he looked just like all the fruit-bearing branches. 
But to the eye of the gardener, it was plain. He bore not the fruit of life. In fact, he bore the fruit of death. And therefore, after all that time with Jesus, after all that time in conversation with Jesus, after all that time as one of the 12 insiders with Jesus, eventually the truth came forward that he was not a part of Christ. He was apart from Christ. And apart from Christ, you can do nothing. So in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, similarly, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So every, time, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. This is almost exactly the same language as in John. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we did, not, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles in your name? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Life cannot come from that which is not connected to the source of life. And that's why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the warning of this verse, for sure. Heed the warning. I can feel Jesus looking in their eyes, saying, you just saw one leave out from among you. Test your heart. You just saw this one leave out from among you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Hear me, you are a branch. But that's not the thrust, that's not the point of what Jesus is saying to these disciples. He's saying, it is true. You're a branch. You can do nothing apart from me. But here is what Jesus wants them to hear above everything else. And this is what Jesus wants you to hear above everything else today. While it's true that apart from me you can do nothing, and this is the third point, if you remain in me, you can do all things. See, it's true. If you're apart from me, you can do nothing. But that's not the point of what I'm trying to communicate to you. What I'm trying to communicate to you is that if you remain in me, you can do all things. Look me in the eyes. You're a branch, but I'm the vine. If you remain in me, you can do all things. That's the point of what I'm saying. Your translation may say abide where mine says remain, but I want you to take note of that word, whatever that word, however it's translated in your copy of the scriptures, I want you to take note of how many times that word is used in this passage of scripture. I count nine times. In 16 chapters, it's all, I mean 16, 16 verses. So it's almost once a verse. Remain, remain, abide, abide, abide. Repetition in Scripture is, is, is evidence of emphasis. And the emphasis in this passage is not, the emphasis in this passage is not, don't be one of those branches that gets cut off and thrown in the fire. That's not what this passage is driving at. 
That is true. That's a reality. That is the warning of this passage. If you need to, I pray that you heed that warning today. But it is not what Jesus wants from you. It's not what he wants for you. The emphasis of this passage is to become a branch that remains in Christ and has the ability by that remaining to ask for whatever they want and it will be granted. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is always doing, he is always presenting you a choice between life and death, but it's not like he doesn't have an opinion. It's Deuteronomy 30 over and over again. This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you death and life, blessing and cursing. That's what Jesus has done. He said, you're a branch. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain in me and you can have all things. But Deuteronomy doesn't stop there. It says, now choose life. God has an opinion. Now choose life. Today I set before you life and death. Choose life. Will you choose life? You see what I'm saying? That's what's happening here. I don't know what to assume from your silence. Maybe it's agreement. <laughs> maybe you're thinking about it. Or maybe like me, most of your life, you think the thrust of the Bible is don't go to hell. Maybe you think the point of the Bible is don't do that bad stuff. Maybe you think the point of the Bible is because you've been taught, don't be one of those sinners. Boy, you need to raise your bar. If that's what. Somebody taught you a pretty low version of what this Bible said. Now they told you the truth. Because you don't want to go to hell. Amen? Now we can, we can main, amen some stuff. I know we can amen. We don't want to go to hell. Right? We don't want to be cast into the fire. We don't want to be found to be fruitless. But this is not the point of the scriptures. This is not the point of this passage. Look at verse 8. Does it say that God is glorified if you just don't go to hell? No. It says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. <laughs> that, that you show yourself to be my disciples. You, you, don't, you don't show you're a disciple of Christ to the world by how much you don't sin. They don't care how much you don't sin. All they're going to do is spin that around and say, you're just having no fun. Right? Look how much I don't sin. Don't you want Jesus? They don't care how much you don't sin. But if you can go to God and ask for something, and he will give it to you, whatever you ask in Jesus' name, that gets people's attention. If you walk with power, like the disciples did, in such a way that even those in your shadow are healed, because the Spirit is resting upon you, yeah, that grabs people's attention. Yeah, people want that. And in the scriptures here, when it talks about this is for your joy, where is that? This is for your joy. I told you this. This is verse, oh, I can't, this is terrible. 
Verse 11, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. People don't care how much you don't sin, but they care a lot how much joy you have because they want joy. But guess what? Joy comes from not sinning. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But that's, that's just the byproduct. It's a byproduct. The point is the joy. The point is righteousness. Righteousness is fun. Righteousness ain't doing, it, righteousness is not just not doing fun things. Can we agree on that one? Righteousness, let me, do, let me, let me quote a passage that talks about righteousness. Okay, this is uh, Psalm 16. Oh Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Look, friends, the main thing that Jesus is saying here is this. I am the true vine. The old covenant is gone. By my blood, I have inaugurated a new covenant. I am the true sacrifice in the same way I am the true vine. I am the true priest in the same way I'm the true vine. I am the true prophet in the same way I'm the true vine. No longer are you connected to God through Moses. You're connected through me. And who am I? I am what I am, the great I am. I'm God. You are in the presence of Almighty God. This is the prophecy of Jeremiah coming to pass. When he said, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. This is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, myself. I will write it on their hearts with my hand. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor or every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Themselves. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more, brothers and sisters. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. In this promise, you will see spoken in another way. Look at verse 15. Try to hear this. Try to imagine Jesus trying to get you to look him in the eye and, say, and him saying this to you. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Now. Now then. What Jesus is setting before you today is not you can avoid hell. This is the good news. He's saying you can be a friend of God. You can stand in the presence of God and not be burned up to a crisp because of your sin. You can be wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. You can be with him. You can be a friend of God. How? Abide in me, says Jesus. Remain in me, says Jesus. 
Dwell in me, says Jesus. All of these words are good translations of that Greek word meno. I looked this up in a, in a, in a, in a Greek book, you know, whatever they're called. To remain, listen to this, listen to this. This word that's translated remain in the NIV. It means to remain, but it also means to abide. To sojourn means to travel up in there. You know what I'm saying? To walk around in there. Get to know it. To tarry. To walk slow. To soak it up. To not depart. (laughs) To continue to be present. To continue to be held. Oh, to be kept continually, to continue to be, to last, to endure, to live, to dwell there. I remember uh, my, my good friend Ronnie Smith telling me about a guy that he worked with. It was, I don't, it was a salesman or something like that. And they would, he, were you shadowing this guy around? And he'd go to different people's houses and um, you go in there and they do what? Was it a sales thing? What was it? Okay, so his last words were, though, have you tried Jesus? I highly recommend him. Walk out the door. So whatever it is they're doing, he looks back at him and says, "Uh, have you tried Jesus? I highly recommend him. I'm not saying that's not a start. That's a lot more than I'm doing a lot of times, for sure. But according to this passage, trying Jesus ain't going to do it, right? You got to start somewhere. You got to taste and see the Lord is good, right? You got to have that first taste. That's a try. But it ain't enough. And sometimes we try Jesus (laughs) like we uh, get an inoculation from a disease. We just want you know, with inoculation, they give you the disease. They give you just a little bit, just enough, so that you don't get sick with it, right? And a lot of times, that's how we want Jesus. We want just enough so that we won't go to hell, because that's the point of the Bible. But I don't want so much that I'm going to catch him. I don't want so much he's going to run through my body and make me do what I don't want to do anymore, right? I just want to try him. And some of us have been trying Jesus for many years. We've had our little inoculation because we think the point of the Bible is you don't go to hell. You think what Jesus is teaching is don't sin. He wants so much more for you than that. And if you don't want more than that, you're not even going to get that thing that you, you've been trying to get, which is not hell. Because you're not connected to the vine. To be connected to the vine, you got to sit down. You got to dwell down. You got to drill down. You got to go deeper. I feel like the the band can come on up right now because I feel like we need a harpist. It's important for us to understand what's being said here. If there's somebody that doesn't know Jesus here today, I want you to have that first taste of Jesus today. I hope something has given you a taste of Jesus. And I hope that taste has been sweet and it's not put a bitter taste in your mouth because somebody that called themselves a Christian treated you bad. 
But I want to let you know what's the invitation that Jesus is making is not just, hey, take a little bite, just add this on to what you're doing, put a little shellac over your life of Jesus, and then just keep on doing what you want to do. He's not saying that. He's saying, abide in me, live in me, and let my words live in you, and I will live in you. And then the promise of that, the promise of that is that you become a friend of God. And there is this sense that that remaining, that abiding, is something that grows over time and there is this relationship that becomes more and more and more of a relationship of loving trust as you put more and more of your trust into Jesus and more and more of your faith into Jesus and he comes through for you and those things start to build up. There is this sense that you become the kind of friend and you all have friends like this. Don't you have friends like this? No matter what they ask you, you're going to do it. And where does that come from? That doesn't come from tasting. That comes from abiding. That comes from dwelling. So there are some of us that maybe need to taste Jesus in here for the first time, but my guess is there's more of us in here that need to do exactly what Pastor Chris just said. To stop running the race not to lose. You see what I'm saying? Why on earth would you get in a race just not to lose? That's what that passage is getting at. It's saying, run the race to win. What's the goal? What's the gain? It's God himself. It's God himself. It's the kind of relationship with God that you can ask like a friend. In this next two weeks, God, would you make this work in this court system in Sierra Leone for our friends to be able to adopt their daughter legally and come back home to us? We're asking in Jesus' name. We recognize, Jesus, you see things that we don't see, and we will place our faith in you. But we're asking you, Lord, because we're your friends. Would you do this for us? And there is this sense that if we've remained in Christ day after day through the hard and through the good, that Jesus wants to say yes to whatever it is that you ask in his name. Lord, would you heal this person in my in my family, would you would you heal them emotionally? Would you would you heal them financially? Would you heal them physically? He says, "Yes, you're my friend." Of course, there's no doubt that comes from remaining. That doesn't cake, that doesn't come from trying. That doesn't come from an inoculation. That comes from getting the good disease of Jesus throughout, through and through, letting him run through you have it all. We've talked a lot lately. This is what it means to lay down your life on the altar as a living sacrifice. To step off the ledge, to run as hard as you can run. To not be content with halfway in the pack because you just don't want to give out too much effort, right? You don't want to be one of those people. You don't want to be one of those Jesus people. you're an usher or you are a server here today, I'd like for you to go ahead and get in place and for the rest of us, let's set our notes off to the side. Let's set our books off to the side and let's turn our attentions to the Lord. And I want you to feel this. I want you to, in fact, just kind of depend on your holy imaginations for a moment. And I want want you to, I, I just want you to think, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Song Kim made our, our logo for, this, for this, this series, and it says, 
in the, in the word name, the name above all names, you may have noticed that there's different Jesuses in each one of those, and each one of them is kind of a different ethnic background. And we realize that Jesus looked a certain way. He was a real man that walked this earth. We don't know exactly what he looked like. We know kind of where he was from, but we know he does not look like a lot of images that we've made of him. But the point of this that we, that I think Song did such a beautiful job of is in every one of those, and I want you to notice this as you go out the door today, you can look to your right and you'll see on the poster there the images that we're using for this sermon series. In each one of those images, Jesus is making eye contact with you. And the reason we wanted to have a black Jesus and a white Jesus and an Asian Jesus and a Middle Eastern Jesus is so that you could see when you look back in his eyes that he is for you. Jesus is for you. He wants you. And there should be no barrier that you have to jump over. That's what he wants. He's offering himself to you today as you are. He's not going to leave you the way you are. He is going to prune. And the last thing that I want to talk about today, and that's, and that's to those of you that are in Christ today, you need to understand, you read in the passage today that Jesus is going to prune you. The gardener, the father, he's going to prune you. Those, those branches that bear fruit, he's going to cut back because it bears more fruit if he does. And I know that's hard to get your head around. It's, it's hard for me with my own plants to do that, to cut back what, what is fruitful in order to produce more fruit. Some of you are being pruned right now, and that's a painful process. But I want you to understand, and I want you to be encouraged. If you're in pain today, and you're a follower of Jesus, you've been trying to do, you've been trying to follow, you don't understand why things are going the way they are, this is a part of God's pruning for you. And so I want to ask that you would just go to the Lord and say, Lord, just turn my attention to you in a Psalm 23 way today. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Your pruning shears comfort me. Do what you will, Lord, because I know you're bringing about more life in me. I know there's some in here that need to hear that today. And there's others that just need to sit down and dwell. You need to drill down. You know you've been passing by. You've been asking for inoculation. You've been uh, taking a taste, but you haven't been dwelling in Jesus. And I just hope that I've painted some kind of picture of what lays on the other side for you and I if we will dig down our feet and we will abide in him. Is the Lord dealing with you this morning? Is the Lord dealing with you this morning? If he is, I want to encourage you to respond in any of these ways. If he's made known to you that he's pruning you, he loves you, respond to him. Respond to him in worship and love. If he's saying, come, taste and see that the Lord is good, would you respond to him? Come down and talk to us. Talk to somebody down here. Talk to the person that you came with. We'll introduce you to Jesus, and you'll see that he is good. But for many of us in here, I just, I just feel like some of us need to say, Lord, I want to run the race, just like our Pastor Chris did today. I want to run the race, not just to not lose. I want you. I want more of you. I want to abide in you. 
And I want to have a loving relationship of trust that's so deep that I can ask you as a friend in Jesus' name, and you'll say yes. And I, I want that. Holy Spirit, would you fall right now? Would you fall on all these folks, wherever they are? Would you heal them? In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. And if you're a follower of Jesus, these ushers will come by, and as they come by, you can come forward and take you this bread. You'll be reminded this is the body of Christ. It's been broken for you. You don't have to be a member of this church to do that. But you do need to be a member of the body of Christ, the family of God. Dip that in the juice. You'll be reminded this is the blood of Jesus that's been poured out for you. And as you take that, return to your seat. And we're going to sing a song that is about the victory of Jesus and how Jesus is your victory. And I want you to just spend your time as we sing through this song, recognizing that the point of what Jesus has to say to you today is not that you would just not die, that you would just not go to hell. He wants you. He wants more for you. And I want you to celebrate that. He's giving himself to you as a reward. Amen. My wife will be up here with me. If you want to come and pray, you can pray with us. If you want to just come and pray and bow your knee, this altar is open. Somebody will pray with you. You can include them or not in how you're praying. They're just praying for you. Let's take this meal together in Jesus' name.